Scripture reading this morning will be from Judges 6, 25 through 27. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar through the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took the ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than it than in the daytime. Thanks, Ron. It's a good thing Edmund Church has three syllables in it, I guess. That's <laughs> never been so happy about that. I have a sledgehammer. We're starting a new initiative. It's called Keep People Awake in Worship. So we'll see how that goes this morning. Now, I'll get to this in just a moment. We are in a series looking at the will of God and looking at God himself. As revealed in the story of Gideon, an Old Testament judge, we see a story in the book of Judges. And so if you have a Bible, you might open it up to Judges chapter 6. And remember, as we have said along this series, as we've gone, that a judge in the Old Testament sense isn't like a judge that we normally think about today. A judge like Gideon didn't make rulings in a courtroom. However, judges that were raised up by God did bring justice to the land and to the people. And so in many respects, this idea of a judge is about justice. And Gideon's job, like all the other judges in Israel's history, was to bring justice to the land so that they could enjoy shalom or peace or well-being. And so when God commissioned Gideon, he said, you are a mighty warrior, which as we have pointed out is very funny because Gideon wasn't mighty and he wasn't a warrior. And yet God sees something in Gideon as God sees something in you. He sees us not for who we are on our own and all of our failings and all of our flaws. He sees who we can become with him. And so God has big plans for Gideon. God wants to do great things in his life, but not just in his life, through him, for God's people, Israel. And God's plan for Gideon involves a sense of reform among Israel, calling them back to God, leaving behind some things and, and having full and total allegiance to God. In many respects, God wants to rebuild the community of faith. He wants to rebuild their faith in him. But before Gideon can do that, before God can use Gideon to rebuild their faith, there needs to be something else take place. There needs to have something else happen, and that is there needs to be a demo day. There needs to be some destruction, some demolition. You've probably seen some of these shows on TV where they remodel the house or a room in the house and they fix everything up. But before they do that, what do they always talk about? Well, today is demo day, and they get their sledgehammers, and they go inside, they put on goggles and hard hats, and they just start ripping things out. Cabinets, walls, they tear out all of that. They talk about how fun it is, and we know it's fun to destroy things. You don't get to do that every day. They haul everything out. 
and take it away so that they can begin to rebuild. Well, in many respects, God is calling Gideon to begin a demo day. And unlike we see on TV, I don't know that it's going to be that fun, that enjoyable. In fact, it's going to be difficult. And I think there's an application for us because God sometimes calls us to demolish some things in our lives, to destroy them, to get them out of the way. And let's be honest, it's not always fun. It's not always enjoyable. But the question I want us to begin with today is, where does that start? Where do we start when we want change? Where does God say to start? If, if reformation, even if a revolution, let's go to the maybe the extreme version of that, not just reforming some things, but totally changing, transforming a community, maybe an organization, maybe a family, a marriage, maybe a congregation. Where does that begin? Where do we start when change is our goal? That's the big question I want us to wrestle with today. In fact, that's the question I want us to internalize and personalize and you need to apply it to your own context. Maybe your context is marriage. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your extended family. You know, holidays are coming up. That means many of us are going to be, going to be spending time with family. Maybe that's the context for you. Maybe it's this congregation. Maybe it's our nation. Maybe we want to see change in our nation. We want to see change on many different levels. Where does that start? Where does that begin? Well, God tells Gideon exactly where to start. He tells him exactly what to do. Now, remember, the Israelites are in Canaan, the promised land, but things aren't going well because they have turned against God. They are worshiping idols. And as a natural consequence of their rebellious actions, now tribes from the east are coming in. The Midianites and all these other tribes are coming in, and they are, as the text says, sweeping across the land like a plague, like a, like a swarm of locusts. And they're destroying everything that belongs to the Israelites, their crops, their livestock. They're making life very difficult on God's people. And so life isn't good. Change needs to happen. Where does that change start? What do you do? God has a plan. Verse 25 of Judges chapter 6. That same night the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. You see, the people there in Canaan who were supposed to be there because God put them there, the Israelites, had turned against God and they were worshiping these false gods, these idols. And God says, you need to destroy them. You need to get rid of them. There was a, a Baal, which was one of the most important gods of the pantheon. It was the god or the idol, the small g god, that was thought to, to bring rain. The god of fertility, the god of life. It was the one that was to bring crops and to bring uh, life. And so, obviously, especially during this time for Israel, in their minds, this is really important God because they are struggling to have crops because these other tribes are destroying them. 
And so there's a Baal statue or idol, and next to that is an Asherah pole, which was a, a tree sometimes. It was a carved wooden pole sometimes. And usually it was, it was nearby another idol. In this case, it was the partner to Baal. And it was dedicated to the goddess Asherah, or Asherah as it's sometimes pronounced. And so you have these idols, and God says they need to come down. You need to get rid of them. You don't need to manage their existence. You don't just need to cover them up for a short time. You need to destroy them. You need to get the sledgehammers out and take them down. And I love what he says. I love how he says to destroy them. I think he's making a point. He says, cut down that Asherah pole and use that wood for a fire on which you will offer a bull to the God. Repurpose that broken, no good idol for something that can give glory and honor to God. That's the instruction that God gives Gideon. Pretty simple, right? Well, let's see what the mighty warrior Gideon does. Verse 27. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. You can almost just hear Gideon say, Okay, God, I got the plan. I know what you want me to do, but you didn't really specify when. And so I think I'll just tiptoe around at night under the cover of darkness so that no one sees what I'm doing. And he tears down these altars in his father's house. Well, evidently these, these idols were uh, more than just belonging to his family, his father's family. Evidently, the neighborhood association dues had gone into paying for these idols, and so the townspeople are also upset the next morning. At daybreak, Gideon's overnight exploits are exposed, and the people see that their Baal idol and their Asherah pole are destroyed, and they are not happy about it, and they want to know who's responsible. Who did this? Don't you just wonder what Gideon was doing while all the townspeople were up in arms? While they were wondering who was responsible for tearing down these idols? Now, maybe he was asleep because he'd been out all night doing this. Maybe he's in the corner somewhere, and the people are demanding, who did this? And Gideon's just like, uh-oh. They want to know, get this, so they can kill him. That's how serious they are about these idols. Now just pause for a moment and get a perspective on this. They're in the promised land, delivered there, safe and sound by God himself. But once there, they are no longer content to worship God. And they aren't just worshiping idols, they are building these idols. And they aren't just building these idols on their own property so they can all gather and worship these idols. When those idols are destroyed, it is so serious to them that they want to kill the person who destroyed them. How far they have come. Well, although this idol was evidently in his own backyard, Gideon's father, Joash, who the townspeople are not happy with because it's his son, Gideon, who has done this. Someone rats Gideon out and says, it was Gideon. Well, Joash, you think, will say, okay, yep, it was Gideon. Let's take care of him. But for whatever reason, 
he defends Gideon. Maybe it's Gideon's newfound faith that inspires his father Joash. Maybe it's that blood truly is thicker than Baal. I don't know what it is, but he steps up to defend his son Gideon. Back in the text, verse 31. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. I think that this statement by Gideon's father, Joash, I think it is included in this text, where it's included and how it is included, to highlight not only the main problem with Israel, but the main point of this whole narrative. And that is that idols, false gods, they are lifeless, they are meaningless, they are useless. Only Yahweh God, the living God, the God of the universe, is worthy of our praise, of our faith. I think that's why Joash's speech is included here. It's not just a part of the the narrative to unfold the story. It is to remind us what is truly at the heart of this story. That there is only one God. That all these things that the world worships, that we sometimes bow down to, they have no life. They have no meaning. They have no purpose. They have no future. I love what he says. He says, Baal, he can take care of himself. If he truly is a God, he will have justice for himself. You destroy his altar, don't worry. If he is alive, if he is active, he'll take care of it. It sounds like Elijah's story, doesn't it? At Mount Carmel, when they have the 450 prophets of Baal waiting on Baal to show up and do something, of course, He never does. There's no comment by Baal. Very much a similar story. And so I guess Joash is pretty persuasive to the people because they don't attack Gideon. In fact, together they give him a new name. This name means let Baal contend. In other words, let let Baal defend himself. Let him contend with Gideon. Let him do something or say something on his own behalf. Which I think is kind of interesting that Gideon gets yet another name. His name Gideon, I think, means hacker. God calls him a mighty warrior. And now the people say, you are the one that's challenged Baal. And throughout Gideon's story, we see him fluctuate through all of these titles, through all of these different ways of describing himself as ways that he was living his life, sort of fluctuating between doing the right thing, but being afraid and being timid and being flawed. It's pretty much the story of Gideon. But now back to our original question. Do you remember what our question was? Where does change begin? If we want to see reformation, if we want to see a revolution, if we want to see something among us, and again, whatever context you need to apply this, your family, your workplace, organization, this church, where does that begin? If you wish things were different, in our nation, if you wish things were different around here, if you wish things were different in your family, where does that start? Where does it begin? 
well, where did God tell Gideon to begin? He didn't say, I need you to pack up and travel 200 miles because there are some idols there. I want you to take care of those idols. What did he say? Your own father's house, your house, your family. That's where you start. There were likely other idols across the land in all the communities of Israel. But God told Gideon that it was demo day in his house. If Israel was going to be rescued from this oppression that they were facing, if there was going to be a revolution among the people, if they were going to rebuild their faith in God, their allegiance to God, then it must start with Gideon's own house, with he himself. That's where change happens. Change happens with me and with you. If you're looking for things to get better, look no farther than yourself. Look in the mirror. That's where change starts. And so let me encourage you simply to be the change that you want to see. Be the change that you want to see in our nation, in our church, in your Bible class, in your family, in your workplace, in your community. Be that change. Embody the changes that you would like to see. That's not an original saying, but I think it is certainly true and relevant for us today. It's such an important principle. If you want things to be different, if you want them to be better, then begin to embody that change. If you live long enough, you discover pretty quickly that you have limited control over things and people. In fact, you can't control other people. You can encourage them. You can try to force them to change. You can argue with them. You can beg them. You can reason with them. But at the end of the day, you can't control other people. You can't control your spouse, your kids, your parents. You can't control the people you work with. It's just not possible. But there is one person you can control to some extent, and that is you. You see, what we often do is we cast blame everywhere else. And we wait, we sit, and we wait for everyone else to do something. If they would just, if the elders would just, if our government would just, if the media would just, if my boss would just. And we never turn that on ourselves and say, what can I do? If change truly starts with me, what can I do differently? One of the variables I studied in my dissertation was something called fundamental attribution error. It's a fancy way of saying what all of us struggle with, and that is we see other people differently than we see ourselves. Specifically, when someone does something that we interpret as negative, and it could be really serious in a negative sense, or it could just be something that we wish they hadn't done, we tend to attribute that to their character, to who they are. But when we do something negative... We attribute it to our circumstances. It's not our fault. So, if you're having a meeting and someone shows up late for your meeting or they're not there and you're ready to meet, what do you say? You think, well, they think they're more important than me or they are lazy or they, uh, you know, they don't care about what we're doing here. We attribute it to their character. But when we are late to the meeting, what do we say? Well, you should have seen traffic traffic was really bad or I was really busy 
It's our circumstances. You see, it's so easy to excuse ourselves. It's so easy to say it's not my responsibility. It's so easy not to take ownership because when we take ownership, then there are expectations. And when we take ownership, it's not so easy to blame everybody else. But it's easy just to sit back. It's easy to sit back and point fingers. You know, Gideon could have just sat back and said, man, our nation's in a bad spot. We are being oppressed. We don't have any food. We are hiding in caves. Man, this is rotten. (laughs) I wish somebody would do something. God says, Gideon, guess what? You need to do something. Okay, God, not real excited about this, but okay, where do I start? You start with you. You start with your house, your people, your family, and you tear down those idols. We must take responsibility. We must take ownership of our actions, of our role in all these different contexts we talked about. God tells Gideon that leading Israel away from idolatry and back to God must begin with him, his family, his home. Well, that's not easy, is it? That can be unpleasant. That can cost us something. That can be uncomfortable. I mean, think about Gideon. From what you know about him, do you think he ever stood up to his father? Do you think he ever took a risk like he took that night? Now, yes, he did, he did do it under the cover of darkness because he was afraid. But even that, do you think he ever did anything similar to that? Probably not. And what did God tell him to offer on that sacrifice? A bull, his father's bull. Remember, things aren't going well. Livestock are being killed by the Midianites. Every animal they have is probably very precious. This was probably a bull for breeding, so we're talking about ongoing meat on the table, and God says, you sacrifice it. Did it cost him something? Yes. Did it put him in a very uncomfortable situation? Yes, it did. And sometimes it will for us. But you see, maybe, maybe that's where God is calling us. Maybe God is saying, you want change? You want things to be different? You wish things were better or different in our country, in your church, in your family, in the office, at work, at school? Well, it starts with you. And maybe what God is saying is, it's demo day. It's time to destroy some things that are getting in the way of your allegiance and your faith to God. You see, we have idols too, don't we? Now, we don't have Asherah poles, although someone has said that cell phone towers are modern-day Asherah poles. I think that's pretty good. Because how many of us worship our devices, our phones, and all that comes with that? The social media, the, the gaming, the networking with others, whatever it is you do on your phone, how many of us look at our phones as idols? Now, we might not admit that, But maybe God is saying, it's time to get rid of it. It's time to destroy it. It's time to put it in its right place. There are all kinds of idols, not just phones. For some people, it's a relationship. For some people, it's this desire to be liked or to have approval. For others, it's their work, their career. For others, it's money and possessions. 
Maybe it's physical attractiveness or beauty or being in shape or maybe it's recreation or, or entertainment. And sometimes our idols, many times in fact, our idols are good things. They're not bad things, but we allow them to take us away from God. We allow those things to get in the way of our devotion to God. And rather than worshiping God, rather than being devoted to God, we are devoted to these things, these people. I like what Tim Keller says about this. He says, at its root, sin really is idolatry, all of sin. Sin isn't just doing bad things. Sometimes sin is making good things ultimate things. When we find our sense of purpose, our identity, when our life revolves around something other than God, then we are moving away from God. And that is idolatry. And so if I am building my life and my meaning and my purpose based on a relationship, you know what's likely to happen? I will be insecure. If my whole sense of me is based on a relationship, then I will be insecure when I don't know what that other person is doing or where they are or what they're saying to someone else or how they feel about me. I will find my identity in the other person. My sense of self will be lost in this other person or in this relationship. You see, that's how we allow a relationship to become an idol. We become jealous or controlling. Sometimes it's even our own children that we almost worship. And when we do that, when we center our lives around our children, when we find our identity in our children, we at the extreme version of that, live our lives through them. We try that. That doesn't work. And one of these days when those children leave the nest, now they might come back occasionally, but when they leave, then we will struggle to find out who we really are because our identity has been in them. Our sense of purpose has been in them. What about when we center our lives around our careers, our jobs, when those things become idols, we find our true identity and happiness in how successful we are. And we become workaholics. Because after all, that's what defines me. So I'm going to pour myself into this job or this career, and it becomes my idol. What about when it's money and possessions? Then again, I, I spend all of my resources trying to acquire more resources. And I worry when I don't. And I compare myself to others and what they have and what I don't have and what I want. And again, I become insecure. What about when it's pleasure or comfort or recreation? I become very susceptible to addiction and I just simply want to escape reality. Or what about when it's a sense of approval? I need to be approved. I need to be liked by others. Then I will be easily hurt by criticism, and I'll struggle to trust others. And on and on we could go. Maybe it's time to get rid of some idols. 
Maybe it's time to start with me and start with you. If you want change, if you want a revolution, then it has to start with you. And it may mean making radical changes. It may mean making sacrifices. As we said before, it may, it may make you uncomfortable. It may cost you something. But maybe it's time to tear down some idols so that you can see God more clearly, so that your path to God is not obstructed with all the things of the world, the things that we think are so important, the things that we bow down sometimes in worship. You know, during the first century and the centuries right after the first century, Christians lived in a very idol-driven society. Idolatry, emperor worship, it was so prevalent. In fact, during this time, Christians were often referred to as atheists. Did you know this? Christians were often referred to as atheists because they didn't bow down to the emperors and the idols of the land, of the government, of Rome. They were called atheists. Can you imagine? And some people during this time, when they decided to live for Christ, when they were converted to Christ, they would face the West, the Greek temples, and they would spit toward the West in defiance to those idols. In this very subversive act of defiance, I will no longer bow down to those idols. Yes, those idols are controlling our nation. They are controlling our people. That is what everyone looks to, but I will not do it. And they would then turn to the East because they thought Jesus would return there and they would be baptized into Christ facing the East. You see, they embraced full allegiance and devotion to God, even when it meant tearing down, spitting against, renouncing the idols of their land and of their people. Statues have been found of these idols, of course. One I brought a picture of, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty and passion and pleasure. You'll notice something, a couple of things about her probably. Look at her eyes. Her eyes, if you can see that, are scratched out. Christians did that. Oftentimes they would scratch out the eyes of these idols, especially Aphrodite, and they would scratch out sometimes her mouth to leave her blind, to leave her speechless. But you obviously have seen something else. What's on her forehead? They have carved a cross in her forehead. And the idea is that, that they might repurpose her divine nature for the cause of Christ now. That she is lifeless, that she has nothing to offer, and that she would be repurposed for the cause of Christ. You see, that is a way that they said, no more idolatry. We will no longer bow down to these idols. We will no longer live our lives depending on them, looking to them for our sense of identity and purpose and meaning. We will look only to God. That's a bold move. Considering the context, considering the pressure, the social pressure, the political pressure, that's a bold move. God is calling us to bold moves 
Gideon was not a mighty warrior, and yet God said, you are my mighty warrior. It's time to step 